todo el mundo. Was really... 1881. What's up, everybody? I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson, author of the Rock and Roll Nightmares book series and director of the film The Ventures Stars on Guitars. You are listening to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast for people who love music from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. And now, on to the show. Today, I have a co host, Marco Manone author of the short story, Hell A Woman, which appears in volume one of the book series, Along Comes Scary, the 60s edition. Hello, Marco. Stacy, it's always a pleasure. Well, uh, thanks for being here. Um, your story, you know, it, it covers the 27 Club, which is such a fascinating phenomenon that none of us can get enough of. But I kind of want to skew away from that and talk about your protagonist because it kind of ties in with our guest today. Um, so your protagonist, he's, he's sympathetic to follow as a character, but he's also a jaded, acerbic music journalist who, for me, brings to mind guys like Hunter S. Thompson, who wrote for Rolling Stone, and Lester Bangs, who wrote for Cream. Were you thinking of them when you created Lenny? Uh, absolutely. Yeah. They were definitely, um, inspirations and, uh, for better or worse, uh, a little bit of myself as well. Um, as you know, I, I've worked as a freelance entertainment journalist for a number of years and that's how our, our paths crossed a number of times. So I'm definitely accustomed to, uh, or was accustomed to interviewing celebrities driving around LA and, you know, that can be very exciting on one end. Um, and on the other, it can also be kind of depressing too, if you, you know, uh, have higher aspirations or you want to sort of maybe connect with these people on, on more art artistic level. So I, I sort of understood that angst and guys like Lester Bangs um, certainly embody that, I think, in a really potent and entertaining way, for sure. Well, one thing that, you know, you, you talk about being an entertainment journalist in the day of the internet and whatnot, um, it's different because underground publications, I mean, Cream started out pretty underground and then it became popular of Rolling Stone as well. I think it was just uh, kind of a stapled together newspaper to begin with. But back then journalists could actually take days to craft their profiles on these artists. They would spend time with them. They would go to their hotel rooms. They would hang out with them. They would go to their house. They would go to their concerts. 
So I feel like in a way that journalism has kind of suffered from the brevity that we're all forced to have right now. Um, you know, like when you uh, did the interview with The Doors um, that we talked about on another episode, you know, that's kind of like you just pop into a hotel room and you've got 15 minutes with them. So can you talk a little bit about how you would have approached your interview with The Doors if you were back in the, in the 60s and 70s? What would be your ideal uh, Doors profile? Yeah, I mean, that's a, it's a great question. I, I would just, you know, kind of to go along with the, the gonzo journalism aspect, I would love to, uh, you know, immerse myself more in their world if, if given the opportunity, you know, if that meant sharing a joint with them or, or having a few drinks, um, you know, uh, that it, it would have been really cool to, I, you know, it's always, we always have rose tinted glasses, I think, when we look back at the 60s, but it definitely seemed like it was a, a more experimental and kind of socially open time, um, at least for the counterculture. So, yeah, you, you know, you're very, uh, you're, you know, very well that the, um, the modern interview circuit is definitely more conservative and, you know, for better or for worse. Um, and it would have been cool to kind of be able to, to roll with those guys back then and, and sort of, um, you know, meet them a little bit more eye to eye on, on, on that level. Um, so I think I probably would have been a little bit less sober um, <laughs> and, and hopefully engaged in some really stimulating conversations. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, those, but, you know, there's, again, kind of a double-edged sword to all of that, that whole lifestyle and that, that moment in the culture, because, you know, guys like Hunter Thompson and Lester Bangs that, that we're t discussing, you know, they both met their own tragic ends. Um, you know, it wasn't just the 27 Club. It was just something about, uh, although Hunter Thompson didn't die during that era, I, mean, I guess neither did Lester. He died in the early 80s. But there was definitely something about that lifestyle or those, um, I guess, creative inclinations that just sort of drove some of these people off the cliff. Yeah, I mean, it really was uh, a highly immersive, personal, hands-on lifestyle back then. I mean, now we're all kind of keyboard warriors, and we kind of look at the world through screens rather than actually experiencing it, which probably, you know, does make for more benign journalism in, in a way. But then again, you and I are still alive, so <laughs> I guess we can count ourselves lucky with that. We've got that going for us. For sure. <laughs> we do. Well, uh, anyway, I just, you know, I do think that you're the perfect co-host for this episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares, because today we are interviewing Scott Crawford, the director of Cream, America's only rock magazine, which features tons of 70s rock icons and journalists, including the immortal Lester Bangs, uh, who's seen in archival footage in the film. So let's get to it. Our guest today is Scott Crawford, the director of the fantastic 2021 documentary Cream, America's Only Rock Magazine. I've been following Scott on Instagram for years via his handle, Salad Dazed. That's S-A-L-A-D-D-A-Z-E-D. -D -A -D -E -D. Uh, it's one of my favorite fixes for a reverent post about the punk and rock stars we all know and love, but never take too seriously. Uh, when I saw his Cream documentary, I was blown away by how much pop culture and rock history he managed to get into just over an hour. Um, when I was a teenager, I used to rifle through stacks of back issues of discontinued rock magazines, and the more salacious, the better, so naturally finding Cream was always a priority. 
They had the best writers, including Cameron Crowe, Lisa Robinson, Lester Baines, and Dave Marsh, to name just a few. And they are all featured in Scott's documentary, along with rockers Alice Cooper, Wayne Kramer, Joan Jett, and many more. Hello, Scott, and welcome to the Rock and Roll Nightmares podcast. Hey, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it. Scott, I, as I, I mentioned before we got on here, I, I saw your documentary yesterday for the first time. I loved it. It blew me away. And uh, great job. Thank you very much. I appreciate that. It was, yeah. a lot of, uh, it was a lot of fun to do. It took almost four years to, to finish the whole thing. But uh, yeah, I was really happy with the, the way it ended up. Uh, totally worth it. You should be. So my, my first question is kind of a big one, but in your opinion, you know, how do you think Cream changed the course or tone of musical pop culture? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, I think what, you know, set Cream apart really from any other publication at that point in time. And you have to remember too, that in the early seventies, you know, rock criticism was still a fairly new, um, uh, you know, a new vocation for a lot of, you know, for, for writers. It was, you know, before that you had jazz, you know, in pop criticism, but no one had, has, you know, it just, it wasn't a thing. I mean, Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy came before Cream, but, um, but Cream re really kind of took that formula and just, you know, tipped it on its side and just kind of upset the, the music criticism status quo at that point, you know, and, um, which meant, you know, taking down the rock stars, knocking them down a few pegs, um, you know, putting them on the same level as the writer and therefore, therefore the audience that was, that was reading the magazine. And um, I think that was a, a big one, um, kind of, because you have to remember, you know, at that point you had bands like Led Zeppelin that were playing these huge stadiums and, and uh, you know, they um, certainly, took them to task for, you know, when they thought that, uh, musically something was off, uh, on an LP or live or, or whatever. And no one was really doing that. Um, at least not in the way that cream did it, which was with real attitude, but, um, and you know, real brattiness, but ultimately it was just because they loved the music so much. Yeah, sure. absolutely. I mean, I can relate to that with the rock and roll nightmares book series, um, working on a nonfiction edition. And, you know, it's very irreverent, but, you know, we kid because we love. And, um, you know, I feel like Cream really was unlike any other music publication back then, because like you said, Led Zeppelin, I mean, they were kind of the reigning gods of uh, excess. <laughs> and right. so were Fleetwood Mac, you know, very highly yeah. produced albums. And whereas Cream was more punk and more raw and gritty. I mean, they, yeah. they really championed, you know, as you mentioned, Alice Cooper, you know, both out of Detroit, Iggy and the Stooges, The Clash. Um, and like you said, they can be bratty, <laughs> you know, a little bit. But uh, why do you think that that punk rock approach to journalism worked so well for them? Well, you know, I think part of that, you know, it's this is, a, of course, a hotly debated topic, but I, I touched on it on, on the film. But, you know, the word punk wasn't even a term until cream coined it. Um, so, but I think that that, um, you know, when you read their manifesto, when I read their, their sort of editorial manifesto in 1968, it was as punk rock as it gets, you know, um, and before even punk rock existed. So, you know, it's sort of anti-authoritarian and, and, 
and things like that. And uh, so I think also coming from Detroit, you know, um, that's something that I really wanted to explore in the film, like just what role the geography um, took in kind of creating this uh, almost anti-establishment kind of uh, magazine. And um, you have to remember that, you know, Cream came out of the ashes of the sort of post-riot Detroit. So it was a very political environment um, and a politically charged environment. And uh, they took advantage of that. And, you know, early on, as you'll see in the film, early on, the magazine, you know, uh, was probably 50-50 uh, politics and music. So both were equally as important to them. And, and in a lot of ways, you couldn't have one without the other. So um, that was that was kind of their the, the case that they made. So yeah. I, I do think I think that Midwestern attitude, uh-huh. um, there was a bit of a chip on their shoulders, you know, because they weren't New York, they weren't L.A. And so they had to distinguish themselves somehow. And I think I think it's just that Midwestern, I don't know, work ethic or whatever you want to call it, but. Speaking of work ethic, you mentioned that it took over four years to put this film together. What what would you say was maybe the the hardest or most most challenging aspect of of putting it together? And you know how did you how did you push through it? When you're working, well, first of all, I you know it's always important to me to get everything. I know that not everyone is going to watch a documentary, me included, and say they got everything. You know, oh, that didn't happen that way, or this wasn't whatever. But my main thing is always getting things at least factually correct, meaning the dates, meaning the music that's being played during a certain period of, you know, whatever, like all those little things. And um, so that that took a lot of like going to school and really doing the research and, and figuring all that stuff out. Um, music licensing took a long time. Um, that was another thing. Um, during the course of the film, you know, uh, nine different people that I had on my list to interview, um, unfortunately passed away. So, uh, yeah, and a lot of those were writers uh, for Cream that um, were sort of, they weren't central to the story, but they certainly would have added a lot of color to the story that I was trying to tell. So, so those were, you know, those were some challenges. Um, and, you know, the, I was working with the, who's in the film, J.J. Kramer, the son of the late publisher. And so, you know, out of respect for him and the family, you want to, you know, you just want to get everything right. And so... Um, uh, you know, we just took our time with it. And, uh, I don't know what pushed me through, uh, other than, you know, I know there's a lot of Stoli involved in making the film. (laughs) Um, that helped. Well, you know, you brought up JJ Kramer. Now, is he related to Wayne Kramer? He's not. Yeah. No relation, but, uh, Barry Kramer was the publisher of cream. And, um, again, no relation to Wayne. And, uh, but uh, Barry and Wayne were, were friends. Cream was a very uh, MC5 friendly magazine. They covered MC5 a lot, not just because they were in their own backyard, but, you know, they believed in what they were doing and, um, you know, their political sort of approach to, to songwriting. Yeah, Wayne is now, um, you know, he's very involved in the prison system and reform and getting music into prisons. Um, you know, I got to interview him as well for my documentary on the ventures. And he's just a, a really deep, intelligent, great guy. And he told some wonderful stories in your documentary, too. He did. He's a real class act. And, and it was a real honor to to sit with him. And 
And not only that, but he he also composed the music for the film. So to have him involved, you know, to that degree was a real high point for me uh, professionally. One of the things that I liked about the documentary too was because I had read so many Lester Bangs articles, but I don't remember seeing any video of him. So, you know, I kind of feel like also just, you know, kind of going by your social media presence and your style, I feel like you kind of uh, identify with Lester Bangs a bit. So um, <laughs> tell me a little bit about how you discovered his writing and what you admire about him in regard to his overall approach to his work and his life. Yeah, it's a great question and an astute observation of me. Yes, I uh, Lester has always been someone that I've looked up to in, in, in uh, at least in terms of just his approach to writing and um, his approach to, uh, you know, just, um, I just felt like, like I mentioned earlier, you know, taking on someone like Robert Plant and just knocking him down a few pegs or whoever it might be, at, at, whether it was Alice Cooper, whoever, Kiss. Um, I know he was not a Kiss fan. Um, <laughs> Neither am I. I identify yeah, well, with Lester in that regard. Yeah, well, that makes three of us. But, um, <laughs> but um, yeah, I just, you know, his, um, just again, his, you know, but but I pointed this out in the film for, because as much as he, I think he was really a complicated, he's a complicated character to sort of paint a picture of because Yes, he, he was like punk rock in his approach and, and was also a, a big fan of punk rock. Um, but in his approach to writing and just, you know, thinking that, you know, rock stars were no, first of all, that rock stars were not his friends. And, um, you know, so creating those boundaries between writer and, um, and musician, you know, so often you, especially now when you read articles, in music magazines, um, they're just to me. They just they're sort they're really fluff, and they don't really ask the hard questions, or at the very least, they don't ask like irreverent questions. Yeah. Or you know, and um, so yeah, I I discovered Lester when I was pretty young, um, and I discovered him kind of probably not the way that a lot of other people did. I was a a, a real fan of of punk rock um, and hardcore in the 80s when I was, you know, growing up. And so I read a lot of fanzines back then. And uh, a lot of the fanzines would name check Lester. I was like, who? And then, you know, and of course, Cream. And I was like, what is this Lester Cream? I don't know. So like, punk rock fanzines came first to me. And then through them, I discovered Lester. And then of course, when you discover Lester's writing, you realize all the writing you've been reading up until that point is, you know, entirely based on his style um at least you know the, the writing i was stuff i was reading um so once i sort of identified oh, okay this style comes from this guy you know I, I i was mildly obsessed with him as a kid and um so making this film was was interesting to me because um you know kind of peeled back the curtain a little bit on him and uh, there was a lot of stuff you know I went into it thinking I knew everything and realized I knew very little about, about Lester. And, uh, you know, I think it would take several films to really figure him out completely. What would you say is, is the closest type of publication or content today that is, you know, carrying kind of the, the spiritual torch that, uh, Lester 
wielded back then? Is, is anyone right now publishing, you know, or pushing that kind of envelope? I don't think in the same way. Um, I mean, he certainly paved the way for, you know, so many writers and, and, and so many different magazines, but uh, I guess I would look, I would probably look overseas at um, magazines like Mojo or Uncut. Um, those tend to be the ones that I think probe a little deeper um, and, and kind of um, aren't afraid to ask the harder questions and are critical in the ways that any, you know, critic should be um, and not afraid to kind of, you know, bite the hand that feeds a little bit. And um, so I still see, you know, so there's definitely that, uh, what am I trying to think, uh, say that like Mojo or whatever it was that Lister had, you can still see in magazines, I think, um, like Mojo or Uncut. Um, of course, no one's ever going to touch what Lester was able to, to accomplish. But in terms of, you know, finding any close approximation to him in, 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 in a magazine format, it would, or Kareem for that matter, I would probably look to, to the British mags. When you talk about sort of approximating Lester, now uh, Philip Seymour Hoffman played him. I think that was really good casting. Do you think that was maybe the closest we'll ever get to uh, kind of having him as a character on film? It, the, the, the voiceover um, actor who did all of Lester's lines actually plays Lester, or pl I don't know if it's still going on, but was playing Lester in one act in um off Broadway play. Oh wow, what's about his name? Lester's life. Um, I'm drawing a blank right now. I'm horrible with names, but he was I am great. too. I hear you. <laughs> and he's a spitting image of Lester, and he really, you know, the stuff I saw was pretty incredible. And I know at one point there was some talk of of that being turned into a film. So, oh, okay. um, but yeah, I thought Philip Seymour Hoffman certainly um, inhabited. I think. Lester's uh, spirit in a way, or, you know, um, I wasn't a huge fan of that film. I, I, but maybe I shouldn't say that, but, uh, <laughs> well, but Cameron Crowe did know him. So, you know, and yes. So those, yeah, he would know more than me for sure. And, you know, he did serve as Cameron's, you know, mentor as well, as well as a lot of other writers, you know, he, he, that was the role that he kind of enjoyed, I think playing with younger writers. Um, yeah, the godfather of cream. Yeah, yeah, and pushing them and, and making them go, you know. Yeah, and you saw that in the writing, especially by the late 70s in the pages of, of Cream, is so many of the writers had a very similar voice to Lester's. And if there's any, if there's like one small criticism that someone might have of the magazine at that point, late 70s, early 80s, is that a lot of the writing and Lester was no longer at the magazine. So a lot of the writing, you know, felt like it was just very similar to Lester's style. You can't keep that momentum forever and the cream did no. eventually fold. I'm kind of wondering, like, what is one of the most surprising revelations or crazy moments from the many, many interviews that you conducted for the film? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I, I mean, there were some pretty crazy interviews, but um, probably the one that to me really opened up my eyes a bit to, to what Barry Kramer was like as a man um, was the one we did with Mitch Ryder. And uh, there was a lot of things he said that I, we didn't put in the film, but it was really just um, eye-opening to, to kind of get this sense of who 
you know, this, this man was, um, you know, Mitch talked about at one point, um, thinking that Barry had, Barry at one point was Mitch Ryder's, uh, you know, uh, manager and Mitch, some of the guys in the band went, thought that he was skimming money. And so they went to his house with a revolver and, uh, you know, put it to Barry's head and said, I, we want to see the books. Um, <laughs> and we wow. want to see your accounting and, uh, and it turns out that, you know, Barry wasn't, you know, um, so, but again, this is a film full of complicated characters, you know, none of them are saints. And, uh, and I, I really didn't want to portray any of them as anything less than, you know, I wanted an honest portrayal of who these people were. And, um, so yeah, but, you know, inter you know, interviewing people like Ted Nugent or something, I mean, these are people that, you know, you don't forget some of the things they say. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm sure that must've been. Uh, uh, an interesting interview. Did you go to his house or? I, well, we, yeah, I didn't do that interview. Jan Huelski, uh, Uelski did that interview, um, but they did shoot it at his house. Um, and as you see in the film, uh, he's sitting there with, I think there's probably at least three semi-automatic rifles in the shot. Yeah, and animal heads on the wall. Animal heads all over the wall. <laughs> right, yeah. And, you know, frankly, I just didn't want to do the interview because I didn't want to end up being one of the heads on his wall. Uh, right. I, <laughs> yeah. I'm not a, not a big fan of better. Ted's. So <laughs> didn't really want to get into debate with him. No. So, yeah. Um, but, uh, and, you know, yeah, so there were some pretty great interviews. Um. I'm trying to think of some of the other material that we maybe didn't use. Um, this was interesting. I was fixing uh, Mitch Ryder's mic during the interview because uh, we were getting some noise on the lab mic and I had to adjust it on his belt line and uh, the the battery pack and he farted on me. Oh God. And, um, and he's like, yeah, I just, I just farted on you, man. And uh, so that was, that was interesting to be farted on by Mitch Ryder. You know, well, like, I don't know how many people can say that. I was going to say not many, but who knows? Maybe Hopefully not too many. I would <laughs> like to think thing. he didn't, didn't make a habit of that, I hope. But um, yeah, so, but we did talk to some pretty big name, you know, and uh, I'm thankful that they all let us in, uh, you know, and uh, to their, you know, homes and, uh, you know, everyone from Gene Simmons to, you know, Paul Stanley and uh, Nugent, Kirk Hammett. Uh, it was really, it, it it was a fun project. Um, there were times where it was exhausting, you know, but, um, but, um, folks seem to seem to resonate with people. So. Well, the one, the one thing that I guess unified all these very complicated characters was their, their, you know, passion and love for, for music and, right. um, the documentary cream America's only rock magazine is streaming on prime and Apple TV. And honestly, we can't recommend it highly enough. If you're a music fan, if you just love that that era um, and that part of the culture, it's it's a must see. Uh, Scott, please let us know where music fans can find and follow you online. Uh, sure, yeah. So uh, we can follow the Cream um, Magazine Facebook page if you'd like, or uh, you can find me on Instagram at Salad Dazed and on Twitter at the same same one. And uh, um, I've done. The film I did before Cream was called Salad Days, and that was about the DC punk rock scene in the 1980s, um, where you had bands like The Bad Brains and Minor Threat. And the next film I'm working on is um, 
uh, it's called Something Better Change, and it's a documentary about uh, Joey Shithead Keithley, who, if you're not familiar, was in a, or still is, in a punk rock band called DOA. Um, and they were really one of the big ones in the 80s. It was like DOA, Circle Jerks, Dead Kennedys, mm-hmm. Minor Threat. And he is now a uh, council member, a, a, a oh, really? politician in, uh, wow. in Vancouver. Yeah. And who's up for re-election. And so the documentary will uh, will cover kind of his, his journey. And uh, in Win or Lose, that will be the end of the, you know, we're going to cover it in the in the film. So ah, I love That's it. That's Thank you. Yeah, well, thank you, Scott. I appreciate you talking with us today and good luck with all your projects. And I, as I mentioned, I'm a follower of yours on social media, Instagram. I love the salad days, the, the daily groan. <laughs> so thank you for that. Absolutely. Well, thanks for following. I appreciate it. Thanks, man. Can't wait to watch your next film. I appreciate it. All right, take Bye. care. As always, I'm closing the show with an excerpt from one of the Rock and Roll Nightmares books. This is from the 80s edition, and the story is Sharp-Dressed Manslaughter by Sean McDonough. Back in the Trans Am, Brett pulled off his t-shirt and put on the manslaughter shirt. He felt the cotton slide over his chest and marveled at the sensation. Nothing had ever felt this good against his skin, not even Kelly Thompson the last time she was in the back seat. He angled the rearview mirror to get a good look at himself with the shirt on. It fit him perfectly. From the manslaughter logo running right across his shoulders down to the hem sitting perfectly above his Iron Maiden belt buckle. It looked perfect. It felt perfect. That knowledge wrapped Brett in a warm blanket that filled his brain with pleasant smoke. All his problems, money, his future, just trying to get home. None of it seemed to be an issue anymore. He vaguely remembered that he did need to get home and decided to try his car again for the hell of it. He was not surprised that the engine caught on the first try. Nor was he surprised that he reached into the passenger well and found that the manslaughter cassette had spontaneously restored itself to mint condition. Everything was just right. This concludes another episode of Rock and Roll Nightmares. I'm your host, Stacey Lane Wilson. The theme song, Out for Blood, is composed and sung by Lars with a Z, Cabot, and the band is Fuzzbuster. You can hear the whole track in the horror comedy film Valentine Days, also with a Z. For photos of the guests and show archives, please visit the website rockandrollthings.com. That's rock and roll with an N. You can also join the Rock and Roll Nightmares Facebook group or follow us on Instagram at Rock and Roll Nightmares Books. That's B-O-O-K-S. This is an indie podcast, so your subscriptions and ratings are really important. Thank you for joining me, and until next time... <laughs>